The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Volume 4. The Medieval World. Episode 63. The Three Kingdoms of Korea. The next episodes of the History of the World podcast are going to cover most of the complete history of the Korean Peninsula from prehistory through to the beginning of the 20th century. Unlike Japan, Korea had a land connection with the Asian mainland, so it was far more exposed to Asian cultural innovations than the Japanese islands. Having said that, The sea journey from Korea to Japan is only just over 100 miles, so it is safe to assume that there was historically a regular interaction between the peoples of the Korean Peninsula and the Japanese islands. The Korean Peninsula was a fruitful place to live with good agricultural land and long coastlines which supported fishing communities. With Korea being in close proximity to China, Innovations such as pottery reached Korea at a very early time compared to cultures globally. Although pottery can be dated back to around 10,000 years ago, there is no real evidence of agriculture earlier than 5,500 years ago. One of the most important innovations to enter the Korean peninsula was rice cultivation. Although some societies were cultivating some wild grains and integrating domestic rice from the introduction of general agriculture, there appears to be a significant upsurge from around 1500 BCE onwards. And this also seems to be where societies and settlements enlarged and prospered. Rice was just one of many crops cultivated in the Korean peninsula after their own agricultural revolution and bronze production is evidenced by the middle of the first millennium BCE, followed by ironmongery a few centuries after, all of which are believed to have been introduced through Chinese societies. The history of Korean societies is structurally very similar to other areas of the world. Time and time again we see that societies have an ancient written history of the origins of their people. And these written histories seem to always portray an origin that their people can be proud of and one that commands respect from their neighbouring societies. Often we find that written histories demonstrate a relationship to spiritual ancestors or deities who would often have supernatural abilities. 
such as the ability to influence nature. In more modern times, when we entered the scientific age, we would discover that archaeological evidence could stand in the face of these written mythological histories and cause us to question their veracity. However, we are still fond of these written mythologies and even though the stories are quite fantastic, we still do not want to dismiss them as rubbish and have a desire to explore connections between mythology and reality. Our desire to discover the city of Troy is a great example of this. The Chinese mention a nation of peoples called Choson, which has become a name that resonates with Koreans throughout their history, and it is still used in North Korea's name for itself, although not in South Korea's. As such, when we are referring to this first ancient nation that the Chinese recorded, we call it Kojoson instead. The prefix ko in this case means ancient, so Kojoson is effectively the ancient nation of Choson, not to be confused with the more recent uses of the name Choson. This is a little bit confusing for those of us following the History of the World podcast episode by episode, as in our Japanese episodes, emperors whose name started with the prefix Go would find that this prefix actually meant later to distinguish it from an earlier monarch with the same name. There is a loose connection between Korean and Japanese languages, but it is very loose and scholars argue about the specific nature of the connection, such is its ambiguity. In Korea's own texts, the nation of Kochoson is acknowledged in Korean texts from the 13th century, many centuries later. Although there is no contemporary evidence of Kochoson before the Chinese mention its existence during the Warring States period of Chinese history, Korean texts suggest that Kojoson was 2,000 years older than that. Korean mythology attributes the foundation of Kojoson to a man called Tangun, himself a grandson of the Lord of Heaven, and the year has been calculated to be 2333. BCE. Both North Korea and South Korea recognise October the 3rd as Keichonjao, translated as the day the sky opened, their national foundation day, and in South Korea it is a public holiday. A Chinese legend tells us of a character called Jisu who was close to the Chinese imperial court during the 11th century BCE when the Zhou dynasty overthrew the Shang dynasty. These two dynasties were covered in both volumes 2 and 3 of the podcast. According to legend, the first Zhou ruler, King Wu, enfeathed the land of Chaochen to Jizu. Now, Chaochen in Chinese refers to Korea, or Choson, as it is called in Korean. The translation of 
Jesus' name in Korea is Kija. So this period of Korean history is called Kija Joseon. According to legend, Kija brought agriculture, silk production and literature to Korea, although we do not have any evidence of Korean literature until a much later period in time. Some historians doubt the existence of Kija, but I often like to point out that many legendary stories can be shown to be based on something, even if the specific story itself is a little unbelievable. Historically, Koreans have demonstrated a mixture of feelings regarding taking the origin of their civilization from a respectable source such as China, compared to having nurtured their own history from proto-Korean roots. During the earliest years of Han Dynasty rule in China, in the far northeast of China, just northwest of the Korean Peninsula, existed the Kingdom of Yen. Yen was a part of Han China, despite being a kingdom in its own right. But the relationship between Han China and the Kingdom of Yen was often precarious in these early years. King Lu Wan of Yen originally showed loyalty to the Han Emperor, but would find that his loyalties were compromised by pressures imposed by the Tiongnu tribes to his north. One of Lu Wan's military generals, Wei Man, fled to Kicha Joseon in the Korean peninsula with a large number of followers. Wei Man seized power in Kicha Joseon, thus ending the period called Kicha Joseon and starting the period called Wei Man Joseon in around 194 BCE. The existence of Wei Man is much more reliably triangulated through ancient Chinese scriptures. It is believed that most of the established Kochoson states up to this point were concentrated in the north of Peninsula and that the south remained comparatively untouched. So the Kochoson polities were quite accessible to the northernmost Chinese societies. With Han China looking to expand its influence, Weiman Choson felt the pressures coming from its west. King Uko of Weiman Choson wanted to control Han Chinese trade with the local tribes, and he would have to face the consequences when Emperor Wu of Han discovered that Uko had killed a Chinese envoy. Han China launched an invasion of Weiman Choson in 109 BCE. Initially, Go Choson successfully resisted. However, the senior statesmen of Go Choson could not agree on a diplomatic solution, with many wishing to surrender to Han China. But King Uko defied these wishes. Ultimately, King Uko was assassinated by one of his own subjects. And this opened the gate for Han China to take control of Kochoson after a lengthy siege of the capital city of Wangonsong, a city whose location remains unknown. After the Chinese conquest, 
This next part can be a little bit confusing, but it is important because it, it describes a cultural difference between North and South Korea, which can be recognised right up to the modern day. The reason why it is confusing is because the societies that were forming in the south of the Korean peninsula are referred to as Han people, not the same as the Han dynasty of China. That is a different Han. We can distinguish the Han people of Korea as Samhan, which literally translates to three Hans, which refer to the three polities of Han people in southern Korea. They being the Pyanhan, the Chihan, and the Mahan. In the north, the lands occupied by Kochoson were now under the control of the Western Han, which were the earlier Han dynasty of China. Those lands that were now under the control of Han China in the north were turned into commanderies, which were typical. Administrative regions of China. Only four commanderies were established during the first year or two of Han Chinese hegemony. From this point on, Han culture started to gradually supplant Kochosong culture. Two of the commanderies became quite powerful and absorbed the other two. The two powerful commanderies were called Lulang and. Shantu. Within the Shantu commandery existed a peoples called the Kokoria, and it might have been that the Kokoria were quite militant towards the commandery, although details of the first known Kokoria peoples is sketchy, and scholars make educated guesses about their earliest activities. We do know that the Kokoria would become a very significant part of Korean history. It is suggested that Kokoria. Was established by a prince called Chumo, who migrated southwards from the ancient kingdom of Puyo, found in the north of Manchuria. You may recall that the Han Dynasty of China was briefly interrupted by a Chinese official called Wang Meng at the beginning of the first century. The Lulang Commandery attempted to secede from China during this period, but it was not successful. Kokoria would look to take advantage of the power vacuum created there. The revived Eastern Han Dynasty of China would not allow this to happen, and so Kokoria would have to remain content with attempting to assert its authority over its immediate surroundings instead. By the second century, Kokoria had become a considerable polity, fronted by a hereditary monarchy. Chinese scriptures refer to an individual called Gu Tei, and some historians believe this to be King Koi. King Koi was alive in the third century, and Korean scriptures from centuries later describe him as the eighth king of Pekje. Archaic Korean scriptures consider the kingdom of Pekje to have existed from the first century BCE, but more contemporary Chinese scriptures describe. Gutei as the founder of Pekje, and this is at a later time. The kingdom of Pekje emerged in the area of the southwest of the peninsula that had been occupied by the Mahan. Its geographical position made it an intermediary 
between Chinese and Japanese cultures. By this period in history, the Han Dynasty of China had lost control of China and fragmented as a consequence. Members of the Cao clan established the state of Cao Wei in the northernmost reaches of the collapsed Chinese state and this resulted in some degree of conflict between Kokoria and Cao Wei. Cao Wei battled with Kokoria and caused a great deal of economical stress for Kokoria and as a consequence Kokoria had to make some fundamental changes to its political stability. Not long after the tensions, the state of Cao Wei collapsed and this gave Kokoria the necessary room to breathe again. During China's instability, Kokoria would enter the 4th century and rebuild a strong army and annex the Chinese commanderies that still existed in the north of the peninsula. This would bring Kokoria within close proximity of the other growing power in the south, Pekche. Kokoria was a nation that had a number of influences. With their territory stretching northwards into Manchuria, the warriors of Kokoria were influenced by steppe cultures and their semi-nomadic lifestyles and their skilled horsemanship. Horsemanship had certainly reached Pekche, but the nature of Pekche was much more sedentary in their agriculturally rich land. Pekche was much more closely linked to Chinese culture, including writing and religion, but there was still considerable Chinese influence on Kokoria too. Kokoria converted to Buddhism after receiving Buddhist monks during the 370s, and likewise Pekche followed suit after receiving monks in the 380s. Elements of Chinese culture such as Buddhism would migrate to the Japanese islands using the Korean nation of Baekje as the conduit between China and Japan. The Golden Age of Kokorea The oldest surviving chronicle of Korean history written in Korea is Samguksagi, written in the 12th century. The chronicle is written in classical Chinese before the creation of the modern Korean alphabet called Hankul. Samguk Sagi tells us about a great king of Kokoria called Quangeto the Great. We are also lucky to have Quangeto's tomb which is accompanied by a stele which is the largest engraved stele in the world at over 7 metres in height. These two sources combine to tell us a little bit about what was going on during the lifetime of King Quangeto. These earliest centuries of Korea's history are referred to as the Three Kingdoms of Korea. Three states dominated Korean politics during this period. Quangeto's Kingdom of Kokorea, the Southwest Kingdom of Pekche, and another kingdom called Silla. Silla was on the east coast of the peninsula facing the vast Sea of Japan. As such, Silla would be the most detached of the kingdoms when it came to exposure from Chinese cultural aspects such as Buddhism. Silla 
was a slow burner compared to Kokoria and Pakche, taking time to expand from its humble beginnings. A number of small states existed in the south and the east of Peninsula and the ones in the south at the turn of the 5th century are collectively called the Kaya Confederacy. Quangeto's texts include a description of a military force that includes cavalry, but also includes a navy, which is something that we have little information about previously. The information about the legendary beginnings of the state of Kokoria, found in the much later Samkuk Sagi, refers to Prince Chumo, the founding monarch of Kokoria from the 1st century BCE, and he is also mentioned on the stele. Chinese scriptures refer to him as Chumung, so this is a classical case of adding historical and legendary legitimacy to the nation of Kokoria. Earlier in the episode we mentioned that Chumo had migrated southwards from a kingdom called Puyo, and by the 4th century Puyo had become under intense pressure from the Chiangbei, who were a nomadic steppe-land culture to the northwest. This weakened the Puyo state and enabled Gokuria to annex most of its territory before the reign of Quangeto the Great. The state of Pakche, like Gokuria, also claimed its origin from the Puyo. In the later decades of the 4th century, tensions increased between Pakche and Gokuria. Gokuria, facing aggression from multiple fronts, temporarily moved its capital city to Pyongyang, the modern North Korean capital. Pyongyang had grown to become a major city from more humble prehistoric beginnings, so it is a very old settlement. King Gokukwan of Kokoria was killed at Pyongyang Castle by the son of the King of Pakche, the future King Gunkusu of Pakche in 371. Pyongyang was subsequently sacked. The kingdom of Pakche appears to have had a strong connection with the Kofun period of Japan. There does appear to be a cultural connection between Pakche and Japan as demonstrated through the similar Kofun burial sites that could be found in both nations. Despite this being a golden age for the kingdom of Pakche, when Quangeto became the king of Kokoria in 391, he would strike back against Pakche in 396, taking control of the city of Wiliesong, which is in close proximity to the modern South Korean capital city of Seoul. Quangeto forced Pakche into a submissive peace treaty. Although Pakche accepted the peace treaty, they would still be plotting to obtain more strength and power with which to try and turn the tide against King Quangeto of Kokoria. Pakche's attention would turn eastwards towards the kingdom of Silla, and they would rally up their allies not just in Japan but also in the Kaya Confederacy to attack Silla. Quanketo would send a significant number of troops, possibly 50,000 men, into Sila to help Sila defend itself against the aggressions of Pakche. Not only would Sila be successfully defended, 
but the army of Kokoria would also attack the Kea Confederacy, with Silla almost now taking a role as a protectorate of Kokoria, and Pakche and Kea having no choice but to accept the dominance of Kokoria, Quangeto the Great had secured Kokoria's dominance of the entire peninsula. Quanqueto spent the rest of his reign expanding in the north of Manchuria against the nomadic tribes of the southern steplands. When Quanqueto died in 413 and passed his kingdom to his son, Changsu, it was a considerable size. Changsu moved his capital city to the Taesong Fortress in Pyongyang in 427. The Three Kingdoms Historians recognise that there were three kingdoms in Korea during these early centuries, those being Kokoria, Bakje and Silla. But we also recognise the Kaya Confederacy, which during the early 5th century was consolidated by the city-state of Taegea due to external pressures created by Kokoria dominance. Historians call this the Three Kingdoms period of Korean history due to there being three significant warring factions within Korea, but we do recognise other city-states existing in the Korean peninsula during this period also. As we already discovered, the state of Silla was subject to attacks from Pakche, and Silla would approach Kokoria for help. This opened the door for Kokoria to move into a position of dominance over the entire peninsula. Now, both Pakche and Silla recognised that they would be better off forming an alliance to prevent Kokoria imposing its will on them both. Kokoria understood that power would be better consolidated in the south of their area of influence, closer to the civilised nations of the south. Kokoria would continue to push Pakche southwards, away from the modern city of Seoul and the important Han River. Going into the 6th century, and while Kokoria dominated the north, Pakche would attempt to make moves to subjugate the Kaya Confederacy in the south. This would improve the closeness of Pakche to its traditional allies in Japan but it would also be a concern for its ally against Kokoria, namely Silla, who risked being completely overwhelmed by its powerful neighbours. At least Silla knew that they had a strong political alliance with Pakche. With Kokoria, Pakche and Japan now strongly leaning towards Buddhism, the kingdom of Silla, under their king Pophung, adopted Buddhism as its own state religion in the early 6th century. It would be under his grandson, Chinung, that Silla's position in the world would change considerably. The Rise of Silla King Jinung and his reliable Silla military sought to fought back against Kokoria dominance and would encourage Pakche to conduct a combined attack of Kokoria and push it back north of the prosperous Han River system. So the campaign happened with both Silla and Pakche pushing northwards, with the Kaya Confederacy also supporting the move. 
Pak Jae under its king Sung was itself attempting to navigate through a cultural revolution by strengthening its ties with China and renaming its state Nam Puyo, which translates to Southern Puyo, a reference back to Pak Jae's legendary origins. This may have been a way to spite Kokoria, who also claimed Puyo origins. Both King Sung of Pakche and King Jinung of Silla commissioned a northward offensive against Kokoria and its position in the Han River Valley, and it was a successful offensive. Both Pakche and Silla expanded their respective territories northward, and the two kings made an agreement about the partitioning of lands. Silla was now able to enjoy control of a portion of the Ham River Valley, but in order to reach the open sea and maritime trade routes of China, Silla would have to enter newly reclaimed Pakche territory to access the mouth of the Ham River. So King Jinung was keen to take control of as much Han River Valley territory as possible and betrayed the alliance that Silla had with Pakche by entering a secret alliance with Kokoria. King Sung decided that he needed to challenge Silla's attempted dominance of the valley, so he called on allies from the Kaya Confederacy and Japan and attacked Silla at Guansan Fortress in 554. Despite King Sung capturing the fortress, King Jinung sent for reinforcements and managed to capture King Sung while he was in transit and this led to his execution. Despite initially struggling, King Jinung of Silla had defeated Pakche and from being the weakest of the three kingdoms was now looking like the strongest of the three. With Pakche pushed out of the Han River Valley, Silla went on to subjugate the Kaya Confederacy. The Influence of Tang China China had been disunited for some time until the Sui dynasty came to power in the late 6th century. The Sui had ambitions of conquering Kokoria and exhausted too much resource in their failed attempts to do so and this led to the collapse of Sui China and the rise of Tang China. Despite Chinese dynasties having a huge pool of manpower available to them, the rugged terrain and strained supply lines caused China to return home empty-handed from the vast Kokoria territory. Tang China would take their turn to attack Kokoria in 645. This time, Kokoria would successfully defend itself yet again. Any type of conquest of the state of Kokoria was an impossible task even for the Chinese dynasties. While Tang China was trying to conquer Kokoria, the two estranged former allies Pakche and Silla were still doing battle with each other. In the kingdom of Silla, a style of caste system had emerged where the ruling elite were referred to as Sunkol, which can be roughly translated as sacred bone, and the class just below were referred to as Chinkol, or true bone. 
Chinkol would not be permitted to rule the kingdom, unlike Sungol. During the 7th century, Silla would have two female rulers in succession, first Queen Sundog, and then after that Queen Chindog. Queen Chindog was very keen to reach out to neighbouring nations for help in her ongoing war against Pakche. So she would use a man called Kim Chun Chu as an international diplomat to achieve an alliance. Despite being a direct descendant of a king of Silla, King Chun Chu's family line had been demoted to the rank of Chingo, which meant that he could not become the king himself. Kim Chun Chu had a very important role to play at court, however. Kim Chun Chu appealed to Go Korea, who had nothing to offer considering that it was defending itself against Tang China. So Kim Chun Chu would then appeal to Tang China, who were happy to obtain a Korean ally that could sway the balance of power in their ongoing battles against Ko Korea. As a result, some of Silla's culture became sinicized, or in other words, became influenced by Chinese cultures to symbolize the new alliance. When King Qingdog of Silla died in the year 654, there was nobody in the Sungol class that could take the throne, as Queen Qingdog died without an heir. It fell into the hands of the Council of Nobles, known as the Huabe, to make a decision about the succession, and eventually Kim Chun Chu was allowed to take the throne and rule as King Muyuel. King Muyur sent his general Kim Yu-shin with 50,000 men to link up with Tang military forces arriving by sea. Despite some stout resistance by the Pakche army, Kim Yu-shin led the Silla to victory at the Battle of Huansang-bol in 660. The cause of the Pakche had not been aided by the disunity of the Pakche nobility. Now Pakche had collapsed and many of the nobles fled to Japan. With Pakche now out of the picture, both Silla and Tang China turned their attention to the state of Kokoria. The death of the Kokoria king, Yong Gesumun, in 666 and the ensuing succession crisis created just the opening that the Silla-Tang alliance needed. By 668, the city of Pyongyang had fallen to the alliance and the destruction of Kokoria state was complete. Now, Silla was the only significant kingdom remaining in the Korean peninsula and they were ready to consolidate their position as such. The Tang, however, wanted to create Chinese protectorates out of the conquered kingdoms and turn Silla into a vassal state. This was never part of the plan for Silla, and so a Silla-Tang war broke out in 670, which lasted for six years, with the result being that without a Korean ally, Tang China would once again 
find its resources stretched and had to be content with only having influence as far as the Taedong River Valley, which is the river that runs through Pyongyang. The rest of the peninsula was unified under Silla control. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you so much for listening to this week's History of the World podcast episode on the Three Kingdoms of Korea. We'll be continuing our Korean story in a couple of weeks. Uh, Next week, we'll be going back to our History of the World podcast magazine series regarding uh, unlikely victories in battle. But um, if you do enjoy the podcast and you'd like to support the podcast, then please do visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. Click on the Patreon link and you can sign up to make a monthly contribution, help to keep the wheels turning on this uh, elaborate and um, and in-depth project. You'll become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and you may qualify for gifts and rewards. Now, This week, we have a couple of new um, members of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, to welcome. That's William Medwid and Martin Nikolai. So thank you, both of you, for supporting the project. Now, if you'd like to access bonus material and you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, you can do that. You just subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. The link is in the podcast description. And if you'd like to get in touch with the podcast, please do drop me a line at the following email address. It's historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Listener messages and reviews. Now, one of our listeners, Andrew Berman, uh, sent a message to Lillian Cunningham, And Lillian is the producer of the podcast called Presidential. Now, if you've never heard of it, I strongly recommend it. I have done in the past, which is why Andrew's written the email that he's written. But um, it's essentially a podcast that looks at each of the American presidents, uh, right from uh, George Washington all the way through to Donald Trump. And um, it's not just a history podcast, but it's really more to do with... It's it's quite an alternative um, style of history podcast. It's, it's more to do with aspects of each president, and it takes you a little bit into the personal um, characters of the presidents. It's absolutely fascinating. Strongly recommend it. And... Really nicely produced. It's a very warm production, very warm and gentle and a pleasure to listen to. And Andrew Berman wrote to Lillian 
um, to notify her that I've been raving about her podcast uh, at some point in the past. And uh, Lillian has um, uh, written back to Andrew, and I've been watching the the email exchanges. Um, she's um, put to me, um, you know, maybe we could have a collaboration one day. Well, that would be wonderful. But um, thank you very much, Andrew. Um, very kind of you to um, almost put us in touch with one another, let's say. But um, it's great that you've let Lillian know that I'm singing her praises. I've not emailed her personally, and so, and I, I don't really know why I haven't. You know, it's um, I enjoy getting emails from you, so surely uh, it would make sense for me to email the podcasters whose work I'm enjoying. Uh, but thank you anyway, Andrew. You took the initiative away from me, and I appreciate that. Um, now, one of the um, History of the World podcast Illuminati's we introduced this week, history, um, Illuminati members, I should say, um, is Martin Nikolai, but he's also written um, a brief note on the Patreon page, um, and uh, it says Dr. Martin Nikolai, so he's not just um, a Martin Nikolai, he's a Dr. Martin Nikolai, but I have a PhD in history. And have often taught the grade 11 and grade 12 world history courses at my school. You have done excellent research and present the material extremely well with no mistakes that I have noticed. I especially appreciate the care with which you pronounce names and places in different languages. Your accents are very good indeed and you do not have to apologise for them. You are very kind and modest and have to laugh at times about... Uh, and I have to laugh at times at... Uh, how you so deftly and nicely handle some of the more eccentric questions raised by your listeners. Well, thank you. And um, for someone who's um, qualified in a manner that I am not, um, I take great, uh, great pride in receiving such an email and, um, and I'm very humbled in actual fact. I do work hard on this project and I try and honour the work of uh, great historians that have preceded me and try not to plagiarise their work and, and try and uh, use all of their resources to conjure up something that will be a culmination of all their works. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Martin Nikolai, for your very kind message and uh, I'm, I'm very humbled. Daniel Aspinwall has written in and said, love your work. I want to send a one-time contribution. How can I do that? Patreon seems to be about monthly transactions only. Thanks, Dan. Well, if you go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, then you can click on the link that says buy me a book and you can make a contribution there, Daniel. But thank you so much for inquiring. Now, don't forget, if you're a subscriber on Spotify, you get instant access to the bonus episode in which we tell you which resources we used to construct these episodes. So um, go along there now and you should be able to see that there's another episode, uh, a little um, brief episode where we talk about the books that we use to make this episode that you're listening to now. Anyway, that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be going back to the uh, to the unlikely victories uh, series of our History of the World podcast magazine. And um, the following week, we'll be continuing our story on Korea. 
So thanks for listening once again. And until next week, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.